What do you think of when you hear the word greatness? For some of you, that may conjure up in your mind a person like Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan, right? Someone who was at the top of their game or dominated their profession or their field. Some of you may have thought of power or fame or success or recognition or renown. While I am not certain what came to your mind with that word, what I am almost certain of is that you desire to be great. That you would desire to have the word greatness describe you. All of us have a desire for greatness. That's why when we were kids, our dream to grow up was to become the president of the United States of America or to become an astronaut or to become a professional basketball player, right? Because we aspired to greatness, but then life sort of happened. And then you realize that you're five foot six rather than six foot five. And so then you change career paths and became an allergy doctor instead or something. Um, that may or may not be the story of John Kurian, just so you know, right? But all of us have this desire for greatness. We all want to be great, uh, whatever your calling may be. If you're a student, you want to be a great student. If you're an entrepreneur, you want to be a great entrepreneur. If you're an artist or a photographer, you want to be a great artist or photographer. If you're a parent, you want to be a great parent. Whatever it might be, we desperately want to be great. In fact, I'll say this, that being around you at Seven Mile Road, I would say that you are some of the most ambitious people I have ever met. You are hungry for greatness. Jesus once talked about greatness. And the conversation came up because his disciples were talking about greatness. And his disciples actually, more correctly, were not talking about it. They were arguing about it. In fact, they broke out into a childlike squabble about which of them was the greatest. And so they were going back and forth as to which of them deserved the biggest position or the highest honor because they were, the text tells us, arguing about greatness. In fact, it's humorous because as you read through the Gospels, you find that that's an argument they had more than once. They broke out into that argument several times about which of them was the greatest. And Jesus interjected in the middle of their squabble, broke into their argument, but he doesn't say what you almost expect him to say. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. He encourages it. He only redefines it and redirects it. He, he tells them that their desire to be great is not actually too great, it's too little. That they want things like recognition or, or some renown or position or prestige. And Jesus redefines for them greatness and redirects their understanding of greatness and gives them a vision for greatness like they had never had before. He begins to tell them what it means to truly be great. Now, I want you to tuck that in the back of your mind and let me change directions for a second. This morning, we're going to talk through another office of leadership in the church, specifically the office of deacon. Now, church government is not a topic that is particularly sexy. It's not going to be something that you read and go, wow, this is so intriguing. And yet, I want you to hear that 
Greatness is at the very heart of this office. I want you to keep the idea of greatness in the back of your mind because greatness is wired into this specific office that we're talking through this morning, the office of deacon. Now, if you're new, let me take 30 seconds to just bring you up to speed on where we are. We've been working our way through a letter in the New Testament called the letter to 1 Timothy, written by an apostle or a disciple or messenger of Jesus named Paul. Now, Paul, by the way, was not a particular fan of the church, was not a lover of Jesus. He hated Christianity. So if you're here this morning and you're not really sure why you're in church and you're not really sure what you think about Jesus, you're not particularly sure if you're a fan of Christianity, you should read Paul because that's exactly where he was. And God, or Jesus, so worked in Paul's heart that he actually ended up loving the church and writing to churches to create healthy churches. And so what we've been doing is studying through this letter written to what is a healthy church, to give a vision for what that looks like. And over the last two weeks, we've been looking particularly, last week and this one, at 1 Timothy 3. The problem back then, as is the problem now, is that you had lots of bad churches because you had lots of bad leaders. And so over these two weeks, Paul, in chapter 3, is giving for us a vision of what leadership in the church is supposed to look like. If you were here last week, we studied 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. And the passage gave us the qualifications for those who would serve as elders or pastors or overseers over the church. This week, we're looking at verses 8 to 13 as Paul starts talking about what should be a deacon. Now, you should be asking, what is a deacon, right? Maybe you've heard the phrase before. Maybe you've never heard the phrase before. I'm almost positive none of us is really sure what it means. So what is a deacon is a great question to be asking at this point. Let's listen as Paul describes what a deacon is. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Hear his words. He says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want you to see this morning through our time together. Deacons are those who lead the church by serving like Jesus. Let me say that again. Deacons lead the church by serving like Jesus. That's what I'm going to talk through this morning. Let's pause for a second and ask the Lord for help and pray, and then we'll consider his word together. Pray with me. Our Lord, we pause simply to ask you for help that as we consider your word now, come and offer your grace. Grace to my mouth that I would preach the very words of God, not saying too much or too little, but to say what you have said. And be with your people and their ears and their hearts and their minds and their souls even now. You can overcome the darkness of mind, the blindness of eye, the deafness of ear, the hardness of heart, that we might receive, believe, 
and obey your word. Actually transform us by considering your word this morning and make Seven Mile Road a, a church filled with great people and give us a vision today of what that means. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say the sentence again. Deacons lead the church by serving like Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to break that sentence into three and consider each of those parts separately. Deacons first lead the church, second by serving, third like Jesus. So let's consider the first. Deacons lead the church. When we talk about deacons or the office of deacons that you find in 1 Timothy 3, you're talking about leaders in the church. In fact, in the New Testament letters, you basically find two offices of leadership in the church. One is the office of elder or pastor that we looked at last week, and the other is the office of deacon. Now, as churches have grown and church history has progressed, you find all kinds of additions, right? You find positions and titles and staffs and organizations and boards and all the rest, and all of that may be fine and good and necessary, but in the New Testament, you find basically two offices of leadership in the church, elders and deacons. And these two are often mentioned together so that you get these are the two offices of leadership in the church. They're mentioned together in our chapter, 1 Timothy 3. 1 to 7 is elders, 8 to 13 is deacons. That's not the only place where they're mentioned together. In fact, in Philippians 1, in another letter that the Apostle Paul writes to another church to promote their health, he addresses the whole church by greeting them, and he greets all the church by calling them the saints, greeting the overseers, and greeting the deacons. Do you hear that? By mentioning those three, he mentions the whole church, because the church is in these three categories. You have the saints, that's all of us, the members of the church. You have the overseers or elders, those charged with leading the church. And you have the deacons, those charged with serving the church. Members, deacons, elders. This is what comprises the church. Now, we'll talk more about what deacons do in a minute. But first, what I want you to notice is what Paul says in this passage about who should be a deacon. As you read through verses 8 through 13, what should immediately become obvious to you is that this passage is awfully similar to the passage we looked at last week. That verses 8 through 13 actually sounds a lot like verses 1 through 7. Not identical, but very similar. Look at those verses with me in 8 to 13. And consider some of the qualifications that Paul says must be for those who would become deacons. Verse 8 begins with, deacons likewise must be dignified. Dignified is sort of an umbrella word, sort of like the word above reproach was an umbrella word in verses 1 through 7. When we studied 1 through 7 last week, we said above reproach is this umbrella word to define the sort of character this person should have. Likewise here, this person must be dignified. That's an umbrella term to say this person must be of a good character. He goes on to say he must not be double-tongued. So he's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. The person you call to be a deacon is not saying one thing here and saying another there. They're not gossips. They're not liars. There's a purity about their speech. Then as you read through the list, you'll actually find some of the exact phrases used to describe elders in verses 1 through 7, used to describe deacons here in 8 through 13. Phrases like, not addicted to much wine. That was something we saw exactly last week. That is, this person is not given over to an addiction. They're not mastered by sin. 
They're fighting sin. They're struggling with their sin. They're not perfect, but they're not enslaved by any particular sin. You also heard exactly the same phrase of not greedy for dishonest gain. They're not doing this to line their pockets. They're not shysters. They're not charlatans. They're not phonies that are trying to get rich off the church. They're not doing this for any kind of dishonest gain, not for position or prestige or power. This isn't them trying to climb up the church ladder. This person is not doing this for dishonest gain. The text goes on to say they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. By saying that, Paul is saying they must be a direct contrast to all the leaders we had seen in this church plant till this point. If you've been reading through the book of 1 Timothy over and over again, Paul says that the people who were in leadership in Ephesus had done what with their conscience? Chapter 1 talked about how they had seared their conscience, or chapter 4, and, and how they had quieted their conscience. They kept stifling and silencing the proddings of their conscience, and now their consciences were burned, were seared. The compass no longer pointed north. It wasn't working. And as a result, chapter 1 tells us that these leaders had shipwrecked their faith, that their faith was like this once great vessel, and now it was splintered into a million pieces. You couldn't even tell anything about their faith anymore. That's not how deacons are to be, Paul says. They must hold the mystery of the faith. That is orthodox Christianity, authentic Christianity, and they must hold that faith with a clear conscience. They must be sensitive to the promptings and proddings of the Holy Spirit. They must be sensitive to the convictions of the Holy Spirit. They've got to hold this faith with a clear conscience. You hear phrases like the ones above. For example, if you skip down to verse 12, it'll say, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. If you were here last week, you heard that loud and clear. And the same idea carries over here that you're not going to entrust the family of God, called the church, to someone that you can't trust his own family to. You know, you prove that you are capable and worthy of leadership in God's church, in God's family, by proving yourself worthy in your own family. Over and over and over again, you'll hear these lists. And here's what I would say. We could go through this in much more detail, but here's the point. Again, the emphasis is on character. Character, that's the emphasis. And that serves as a stark contrast to us, right? We tend to pick people based on competency. God picks people based on character. You should hear that again. We hire and fire and elevate based on competency. God elevates based on character. And again, the emphasis of this list in verses 8 through 13 is that character counts. Right? It's not a lesser standard of character for those who would serve as deacons. When you read 1 through 13 in total, you don't go, you know, the elders are called to varsity status holiness, but the deacons JV will do, right? You don't read this list and go, you need saints to be pastors, but any scrub can be a deacon. You don't read this list and, you know, get convicted by verses 1 through 7 and go, oh man, who can live up to that? And then kick up your feet and relax with verses 8 through 13 as if it was a breeze, no, the, the entire list, 1 to 7 for elders, 8 to 13 for deacons, is this sobering weight of what is required for those who would serve in leadership in 
Jesus' church. And the emphasis again and again is if you are going to lead in Jesus' church, whatever level that might be in, it requires godliness and Christian maturity. Now, we said that last week, and I want to emphasize again that similarity between the office of elder and the office of deacon. But having highlighted those similarities, I don't want us to ignore the differences because they're not the same thing. The office of elder is different than the office of deacon. And so what are some of those differences? Let me give you some examples. For example, one of the differences you'll notice as you study through these two lists is that in 1 to 7, with the requirements for elders, one of the requirements was he must be able to teach. Did you notice that that doesn't show up again in verses 8 through 13? There's no requirement there about ability to teach. And that's because there's a difference in the call to these two offices. Elders are those who have been entrusted with teaching authoritatively God's word, communicating it, defending it, protecting it, teaching it. Deacons do not have that same charge. They're not entrusted with that same spiritual authority. They don't bear spiritual authority in the church. And so there's no call for them to teach authoritatively. You'll also notice there's a difference in regards to gender. Right? When you come to 3 verse 11, you come to one of those gender landmines that you see over and over again in 1 Timothy. If you were here a few weeks ago, we had to teach through 1 Timothy 2 where Paul said, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise over authority over a man. I'm not going near that again because we did it already, right? But this week, we come to another one of those differences between the offices. And so l- let me take a two-second tangent to explain what I mean. In verse 11, you'll read, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, here's where the squabble comes. In the original language, that word wives is actually a word that can be translated as wives or women. And so it's a question of translation. And so the scholars who debate on this say, is Paul talking about the wives of deacons and what their character must be? Or is he talking about women who serve as deacons and what their character must be? You see that? It makes a difference. If this is the wives, then he's talking about what do you want from the wives of male deacons? But if the word is women, then the question is, what are you calling for from women who will serve the church as deacons? Now, without going into this much, let me just quickly say this. There's good arguments on both sides, and scholars have debated this over and over again. Let me tell you why we lean towards and why we think there's good reason for the text to invite both men and women, to serve the church as deacons, right? The text gives good reason why we think this is for both men and women. For one, he uses the word likewise. Now, you read past that in English, you blow right past it, that makes no difference. But the word likewise is used in verse 8 when he's starting to talk about deacons. So it's one to seven is elders. He says the word likewise deacons to introduce a new category. And so when he gets to verse 11, he uses likewise again, and perhaps it's because he's introducing a new category again. We're talking about females who will serve as deacons. Likewise, the women or their wives must be this way. Also, another reason we lean that way is it would seem odd that Paul is giving specific character requirements for the wives of deacons, 
but make no mention of the wives of elders. You see that? If this is about the wives of deacons, why would you not say anything about the elders who bear ultimate authority over the church, but make specific requirements about deacons who serve under elders in the church? Unless, of course, that's not what he's saying, and Paul is actually talking about women who can serve as deacons. There's others. In Romans 16, verse 1, Paul actually names a woman named Phoebe and calls her a deacon. And so perhaps that's because she served in the church as a deacon. Throughout church history, you'll see very early on that the office of deaconess springs up. And so we get these clues that whereas God has reserved the office of elder to men, God invites both men and women to serve in the office of deacon. It's not a teaching role. It's not an authoritative role. And so at Seven Mile Road, we want to seek God to invite both godly men and godly women to serve the church as deacons. That's my two-second tangent. If you have more questions about that, ask Pastor Benu. okay? So deacons are, here's what I want you to hear. Deacons are leaders in the church. And this emphasis on character shows up again. We need healthy churches. If we need healthy churches, we need healthy leaders, both elders and deacons. The question that should be in your mind, though, is, okay, we get who the deacon should be. What do the deacons do? How do they lead the church? And that's where I want to come to the second part. Deacons lead the church by serving, by serving. Deacons lead the church by serving. As you read through the letters of the New Testament, what you find is that there's lots of references to the job description of elders. We know exactly what they're supposed to do. As you read through the New Testament, they're to teach. They're to exercise authority. They're to govern. They're to rule. They're to shepherd. They're to defend the flock from wolves and false doctrine. We know exactly what pastors are supposed to do. We find very little written about what deacons are supposed to do. In fact, there's only two passages in the Bible where they're clearly mentioned. One is the passage we're looking at right now in 1 Timothy 3. And you read through verses 8 through 13. There's lots there about qualification. There's nothing there about function or duty in the office. The other passage was Philippians 1, where they're simply greeted, saints, elders, deacons. And so we don't have a great deal in the scriptures about what deacons actually do. But thankfully, I don't think we're completely lost because the scriptures clues us in to what the office of deacon is about. And one of these clues is in the book of Acts and chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but just hear what happens with me. In the book of Acts, here's what happens. Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to the earth. He's died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He rises again in victory, and he ascends to heaven, promising that he'll return. Till he returns, he launches the church to be his mission in the world, and he fills the church with the Holy Spirit. That's the beginnings that you begin to read about in the book of Acts. And what you read is that when he sends the Holy Spirit, thousands of people get saved. In fact, the first chapters of Acts are about these massive conversions of people repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus. And overnight, the church goes from this small group of about 120 to this massive group of over 3,000. And daily, people are being saved and added to the church. Now, what that meant was an overnight leadership problem because you had 
120 who were being shepherded by 12 apostles. And overnight, you had 3,000 that were then entrusted on this 12. 12 people to lead 3,000. And so one of the things that immediately arises is that as the church explodes and grows, you have certain problems that show up. For example, in Acts 6, the church does what she's supposed to do. She's caring for the poor. She's caring for widows. And a fight breaks out because Jewish widows are being cared for, but Greek widows are being neglected. And so there's this question of race, and there's this problem that threatens to destroy the church just as it's getting going. And as they see this problem, what begins to become more aware is we don't have enough leaders to meet this need. How are we going to preach the gospel and teach the scriptures and seek the lost and care for the widows and feed the tables and and do all of that at the same time? How are the 12 going to do it? And so this is what they come up with. Listen to their resolution of the problem. This is Acts 6. It says, And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You hear what they decide? The twelve say, we cannot abandon God's call on us to preach the word and to lead the ministry of prayer to wait on tables. It's not because waiting on tables is beneath them, but they've been trusted by God to a certain call. And so what they say is, from among you, choose seven godly folks. Not, hey, they're just serving tables, so any seven will do. Any scrubs will do. No, this is godly folks, just like 1 Timothy 3. Choose seven qualified folks and commission them to serve, to wait on the tables, so that as they do what they do, we will be freed to do what God has called us to do. Do you hear that? Do you see that? The principle is that the 12 cannot abandon God's call to them to serve tables. And so qualified folks must be called to serve so that the elders can be freed to do what they do. The church cannot accomplish her mission without the 12 and the 7 working side by side to do what God has called them to do. It's this beautiful balance almost of word and deed. You see the two? The elders will lead in word. These seven will lead in deed. And word and deed, right hand and left hand, come together in this beautiful display of the gospel ministry of the church. And that's at the heart of this whole thing. Many have looked at Acts 6 and said, that is the birthplace of the office of deacon. Now, whether that's exactly true or not, I'm not sure. But I do know There's good reason, and that serving is at the very heart of the office of deacon. We know that because, listen, the word deacon literally means servant. That's what deacon means. Diaknos is the Greek word that means servant. And so service is at the very heart of the office. It's in the very title of the office. That word servant or deacon was a word used back then to describe the function of a waiter, someone who served the tables like you see in Acts 6. In our day, this would be a a waiter. In our day, this would be the office of barista, right? When you go to Starbucks, 
You've got the manager in the back room doing whatever they do. But the only reason the place works is why? Because of the baristas, because they do what they do. Who, who makes the office? Who, uh, the coffee? Who, makes the, who takes the orders? Who works at the register? Who cleans the place? Everything that's done gets done because of the baristas. So if it were in our day, Paul would be writing this passage because of the office of the barista. That's what deacons are. And perhaps one of the reasons why we're not given specific job descriptions is because what deacons do is they serve as the church needs. And those needs will look different in different churches, in different contexts, in different cities. And so in some churches, deacons will wait on tables and serve food. In some churches, deacons will manage ministries and handle administration and take care of finances. In some churches, deacons will visit the poor and care for the sick. In some churches, deacons will do whatever it is that the church needs them to do. The idea is that in a multitude of ways, as the church needs, freeing the elders, the deacons lead the church by serving. Hear that again. Deacons lead the church by serving. The office of deacon is about serving. And the deacons are the servants of the church. Literally. They are our waiters. They are our baristas. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't imagine that for many of you that sounds particularly appealing. I don't imagine that your heart is chomping at the bit to be called a barista of the church. That you're just waiting in line. Where's the application form so that I can sign up to be the church's waiter? I would love to be the church's servant. I don't know about you, but I don't imagine that's what's flowing in your heart. You know why? We want to be great. We aspire for greatness. We want to be on top, not at the bottom. We want to climb the ladder to get to the top, to the place where people serve us, not descend to the bottom where we serve people. We know the great ones, and the great ones are served. They're not the ones who do the serving. We so desperately want to rise rather than descend. We are positive that to be great means to be served rather than to be the one who is serving. And I'll tell you, that's exactly what Jesus' disciples thought also. When they got into that squabble that I mentioned, when they were literally arguing about which of them was the greatest and who was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus, I mean, these guys were so immature, they called their mother, one of two of them, called their mama to ask Jesus if we could sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, right? You can imagine how the disciples ragged on them. You called your mama here to get Jesus to make you at the right hand and the left hand? I mean, they were squabbling like kids over who was the greatest. And Jesus broke into that squabble. And I want you to hear what he says. But Jesus called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's not rebuking them for wanting to be great. He's just redefining greatness for them. He's saying, you want to be great? Let me show you the path to greatness. Here's what it takes. Be a servant. You want to be truly great? Be a servant. In fact, if you were to literally translate this in the original language, I want you to hear how this would literally be read. It would be read, but whoever would be great among you must be your diaknos. It would be literally translated, but whoever would be great among you must be your deacon, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You want to be great? Diaknos. Be a servant. It, it's a paradox, just like so many other things in Jesus' kingdom. The last are going to be put up at first, at the first, and those who are first are going to be pushed back to the last. Or when Jesus says, you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. You'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's the same deal. You want to be great, be a servant. Jesus is redefining greatness for us, and I want you to hear this. I know it is counter to everything you believe in your gut. Everything in you goes, that's not the way the world works. That's not reality. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, the way up is by climbing the ladder down, one rung at a time. And as you climb that ladder down one rung at a time, you are getting closer and closer to greatness. Hear that. L let the Holy Spirit tattoo that in your brain. As you climb the ladder one rung at a time down, the lowlier you get, as least as you can become, the closer you are to greatness. Because those who will be great will be the servant of all, Jesus says. I want to read you a quote from a pastor named Rick Warren. Many of you have heard of him before. He has a great quote on greatness. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus measured greatness in terms of service, not status. God determines your greatness by how many people you serve, not how many people serve you. God often tests our hearts by asking us to serve in ways we're not gifted. If you see a man fall into a ditch, God expects you to help him out, not say, I don't have the gift of mercy or service. While you may not be gifted for a particular task, you may be called to do it if no one who is gifted at it is around. Your shape or gifting reveals your ministry, but your servant's heart will reveal your maturity. No special talent or gift is required to stay after a meeting to pick up trash or to stack chairs. Anyone can be a servant. All it requires is character. It is possible to serve in a church for a lifetime without ever being a servant. You must have a servant's heart. How can you know if you have the heart of a servant? Jesus said, you can tell what they are by what they do. Seven Mile Road Church is filled to the brim with people who want to be great. But Seven Mile Road Church, are we filled to the brim with servants? 
because that's what it takes for greatness. If we're going to be great, we must be servants. Jesus is telling us this morning, no matter what the world tells you, I know you think everything I'm saying is upside down. I'm putting the world back right side up. And I'm telling you, there is no greatness that comes without being servant. I almost picture being in heaven and just being surprised by all the people that Jesus will elevate and honor that we took no notice of as we were flying past them in our chase to the top. Right? I I almost feel like this quiet, no-named person is going to be honored in such incredible ways in the kingdom to come while we took no notice of them as we were climbing our way to greatness. Greatness comes by climbing down the ladder, one rung, one act, at a time. I want you to hear that. Because I promise you, Jesus once told his disciples, I tell you, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples, if you serve a cup of cold water in my name for my sake, you'll never lose that reward. Think of that. Some of us are giving our lives, our energies, our passions, and all that we are to things that will be forgotten 10 years after we're put in the grave. And Jesus is saying, meanwhile, a cup of cold water will be remembered for eternity. Doesn't that have the opportunity to redeem all your acts of service? To go, if I do this and do this from a right heart, well, this will be remembered in eternity. Literally, as you're filling up that sippy cup for the 17th billion time, Jesus will remember that in eternity. When you're sweeping the hall and you're grumbling in your heart going, why is no one else doing this? And your heart is corrected Jesus will remember that in eternity. When you're doing what they're doing upstairs and no one wants to do that job, watch the kids in the nursery, Jesus will remember that for eternity. When you go the extra mile for that coworker at work as they ask you the 17,000th time how to do that thing and you do it, Jesus will remember it for eternity. Why give your life to things that will be forgotten 10 minutes after you're done. When Jesus is saying, even a cup of cold water given in service as diaknos will be remembered for all eternity. And then you'll realize every opportunity to serve is another opportunity to climb down the ladder. This is another rung down so that I can be great as it is truly meant to be great. The beauty of the office of deacon is they get to do for us all, by example, what we're all called to do as Christians. And into the office of deacon is wired in its DNA greatness. Because the office of deacon is serving, and serving, if done rightly, is headed for greatness. It's unavoidable. You want to be great? Be a servant Because serving is the path to greatness. Let me say one last thing and then we'll be done. What are deacons? They are leaders in the church. What do they do? They lead by serving. And what does that serving look like? Like Jesus. Deacons lead the church by serving like Jesus. What's the office of deacon about? It's what everything in the church is about. 
It's about Jesus. Because every deacon that the Lord will ever raise at Seven Mile Road, you know where they'll take their cue? From Jesus, the true deacon. I want you to hear that. In both these offices in the church, it's Jesus. The elders are called as under-shepherds to who? The true and great shepherd, Jesus Christ, First Peter. The true pastor of the church, that's Jesus. Well, guess who the true deacon is? It's Jesus. I'll prove it to you. I'm not making this up. In Luke 22, verse 27, two seconds after Jesus has finished washing their feet, they're sitting in the upper room. Jesus is just finished saying, consider this, he's just finished saying, I'm going to give my body to be broken, my blood to be shed. The disciples hear that. He's just finished getting on his knees, washing their feet. The disciples see that. And two seconds later, they go, that's all great. Which of us is the greatest? And they break out into the fight again. And Jesus in Luke 22 says this to his disciples. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see that? He's got the 12 and he goes, listen, you go to a restaurant, which is the greater position? The one who's sitting at the table ordering up everything ready to throw down money onto the table or the one taking the order? It's certainly the one taking, sitting at the table. And Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. I, I want you to hear how that would be literally translated. Hear it again. It would be translated, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who deacons? Is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who deacons. Let me let you hear another one. Mark 10, verses 43 to 45. He says, whoever among you would be great must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he says, for, why should you do this? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to how that would be truly translated. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. The office of deacon is all about Jesus because Jesus said, I have come among you as deacon. I came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. And Jesus came to serve us all. You know how I know for sure, for sure, for sure that the path to greatness is through serving? Because that's the path Jesus took. Let me read you one last verse so that you see this. In Philippians 2, when Paul is writing to the church, he wants to talk them about how exalted Jesus is. Just listen to this. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hang with me for two more minutes. Do you see that vision? Is there a an image you can possibly imagine of something greater. Listen, highly exalted, given him the name that's above every name. I mean, Michael Jordan's a name. Muhammad Ali's a name. A name above every other name. In fact, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, that is greatness. A vision of greatness no one else will ever come close to. And here's my question. 
How did he get to that place of greatness? The verses right before tell you the path that took him there. It's verses 5 onwards. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a deacon, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Do you hear that? He is going to have the name above all names and be exalted to the highest place and every tongue that sees him is going to confess he is Lord and all of that came through Diaknos, through the great one who came down one rung at a time and became like us, a human being. And not just like us, he became a servant, taking on the form of a servant. And not just a servant, he humbled himself and lowered himself down till he had nowhere left to go. They laid him on the floor and hammered him to a cross. He waited on you hand and foot like a servant would. In fact, he waited on you hand and foot, nailing his hands and feet to that cross, serving you, serving you. And because he was diagnosed, God has exalted him to the highest place. The path to greatness is the path of Jesus. You want to be great? Follow the path. And the path comes by climbing down that ladder one rung at a time. For whoever of you would be great must be deacon of all. Jesus came to deacon, to serve. And if you see him serving you, it will free your heart to serve. No one can serve like Jesus until they are first served by Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for all. And when you see him deacon, it'll free your heart to deacon. Okay? Listen, when you don't want to serve because doing that thing would be beneath you, that's not my responsibility. I've worked too hard to do that. When you don't want to serve because your pride puffs you up and says, that's not yours, you don't have to do that then see deacon, the true deacon, and see him who was great, humble himself to be the lowest and the least. It was not beneath Jesus to serve you. It is certainly not beneath you to serve one another. When you think to yourself, I don't want to serve because this would be inconvenient or unpleasant or not comfortable, see the true deacon. See him carrying your cross. And I can guarantee you that cross was not pleasant and it was not convenient and it was not comfortable and yet he served you even unto death and that can free you to serve. When you don't want to serve because you think, you know what, that's not my responsibility. Last week we had a core group meeting. We had all gathered together and we have our noisy children And then we need someone to watch the kids, and two volunteers served, as volunteers always do at Seven Mile Road. I was particularly struck because one of the people who served watching our kids is a single gal. And I kept thinking to myself, she has no obligation to do that. Why isn't she thinking in her mind, I don't have kids here. That's not my responsibility. It's not like I'm going to do this this week because someone else is going to watch my kids. She has no kids here, and she watched all our kids. 
That's not her responsibility. And yet when you see the true deacon, it frees your heart. Because can I tell you, my sin wasn't his problem. He made it his problem. He made it his responsibility. And he served. And served even unto death. And that can free your heart to be diagnosed and lead you on the path to greatness. So may the Lord transform us. If, if your heart is resistant to serving today, repent and ask for Jesus' heart. And may he raise up here many who diagnose, many who deacon, so that from among you we might be able to call some to the office of deacon, so that deacons can lead the church by serving like Jesus. Let's pray.